Joel, I'm one of the pastors, and we're going to continue our series in Matthew's Gospel, reading verses uh, 27 through 30 of chapter 5. So hear now the word of our Lord. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is the word of God for the people of God. Okay, we're looking at how following Jesus helps us to possess a certain kind of character, what Jesus teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Two weeks ago, we looked at the Sixth Commandment, the heart of the Sixth Commandment, that you shall not murder. This week, we look at the heart of the Seventh Commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Jesus shows us here, he says, lust, even looking at a woman, looking at someone with lustful intent is adultery, like adultery in the third degree, adultery in in the heart. In other words, truly hearing and following the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. It means that we possess a heart that doesn't even skip a beat in the presence of beauty. This keeps right on beating just as it should. It's to possess a heart free of all lust. That's a heart in conformity with this commandment. Now, the word lust. Like I, I almost wonder if some of you knew I was preaching on this because it's a little light today, right? And that word can make us un- uncomfortable. Um, and I wonder what comes to mind when you think about that word, lust. There was a nightclub off of Peters Creek Parkway, and it undergoes, in my, I used to, in my a past commute, I would pass by there often. And the name would change every so often. And at one point, the name was lust. And I suppose it was the idea of let's just kind of be transparent and forthcoming about what happens in this place. Right, And maybe that's kind of what you think about when you think about lust. It seems kind of icky, right? Some of you, it's not so much ickiness, it's shame. Some of you, it's hurt. Some of you are extremely hurt. And you associate lust with hurt. Some of you, it's hopelessness, resignation maybe, maybe indifference. It's just... It's part of the world we live in, right? It's it's humanity's plight in this era, lust. There are kind of two categories of response. If you could put them on a two big buckets. Our modern secular culture is characterized by by what you might say acceptance of, of lust. That what the Bible calls lust, what conservative religions like Christianity call lust, is really just a natural appetite, right? It's not really a problem. It's not wrong. We don't need to feel guilty about it. Lust isn't the problem. It's the fact that religions like Christianity make everybody feel so ashamed about what is just perfectly natural and perfectly acceptable. And so we might read Jesus's words and think he's, he's just so out of touch. He's so outdated. He's so prudish. The Bible is so negative on sex and sexual desire. But if you read the story of Scripture, you'll, you'll discover somewhere around in the middle that the Bible is totally sex positive. I mean, it, it, it celebrates sexual desire. If you read Song of Solomon, right, it's, 
It's erotic literature in the very best way. Go read it for yourself and see if you haven't recently. Um, And Jesus isn't condemning just any response to beauty, the natural response, the good response to beauty that we have. There's nothing wrong with noticing beauty in a man or a woman and admiring that beauty and even, in a sense, being drawn to it. That's perfectly natural. But Jesus is suggesting that lust is different than that. The, The word lust Um, From the Greek, it's joining up two words, epi and thumos. Epi is over, around, and thumos is desire. Lust is this over-desiring, being bound up and controlled by a desire, too much desire. Jesus is suggesting that we may experience disproportionate desire when it comes to sexual desire, to to lust, that there's a sense in which it's not natural at all. And C.S. Lewis has this great way of getting at this. I think it's in Mere Christianity. He says, just, just think, we all know you can get such a large audience together if you have a woman on stage and she begins to undress, right? But he says, imagine that you came to a country where you could fill a theater by simply bringing a covered plate onto the stage and then lifting the cover so as to let everyone see, right? And just before the lights went out, it contains a, a mutton chop, right, or a piece of bacon. And the whole crowd is gathered together just to see just a glimpse of the bacon, Right, and you're visiting this country, you would say, ooh, something's gone wrong with their appetite for food. Like, this is not natural. There's something wrong here. And yet that's exactly how we relate to sexual desire, isn't it? We, we like to say it's a natural appetite, and yet we don't treat it. We don't experience it like any other natural appetite. Right? Isn't there plenty of evidence that sex has kind of gone wrong in our culture? I mean, sex can be used to sell anything like watches, water bottles, bacon cheeseburgers. That's a problem, right? Like that's a pro- maybe there is maybe we're off. Maybe we're off. But but if if the modern secular culture is characterized by acceptance, then the church you could say is characterized by avoidance. Right? We're embarrassed by the topic of lust. I had a you know, you might be feeling like somebody I talked to this week who was like, "Oh, you're preaching. Oh, okay. Well, maybe I'll come listen. What are you preaching on?" Lust. And they're like, oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, I definitely want to hear you preach sometime, maybe. I might not be able to make it this time. You know, and the idea is, look, that doesn't, maybe, that doesn't relate to me. I don't want to wade through that, right? All of us are touched by this issue. So many of us have kids. Chances are you'll, you'll be touched by this issue. Right, the church says avoid it. Don't don't ask. Don't tell. Right, um, deal with it. If you struggle with it, get married. Marriage does not solve the problem of lust. Jesus is talking to married men here specifically. Moralistic people say just stop it. Just will to stop. But there are so many people who are trying, genuinely trying to stop, and they just can't. They pray every day for God to take it away, and they can't figure out how. They can't figure out how to stop. Many in the church are scared to disclose or share that they might have this struggle because lust is not one of those sins that you share, right? Like last, you know, two weeks ago, we looked at anger. A lot of us, we're, we can, that's more of a respectable, like, I struggle with anger. I get too passionate sometimes, right? And we can share that and we ask for prayer. But if someone's like, hey, I struggle with lust, and there's like immediately people lean away, right? Ooh. Shame even by association. But Jesus doesn't do that. He makes lust a public issue. And he's, 
He holds it right up there with anger and says, anger is murder, lust is adultery. They're both huge problems. Let's talk about these. Let's get them out in the open. Now you might say, well, you know, as long as I contain the lust, as long as, the, or the, the, as, long as I contain it, it doesn't hurt anybody. As long as I keep it in my imagination, it doesn't hurt anybody. Frederick Beatner, who's a novelist who became a Christian later in life, this is how he responds, and it's just such a great response. He says, but who is? Who is to say who gets hurt and who doesn't? Maybe the injuries are just internal. Maybe it will be years before the x-rays show anything. Maybe the only person who gets hurt is you, but doesn't that matter if you get hurt? Right? It's almost certain that others are getting hurt, or at least that they're negatively affected by this thing. Let's just set aside the relationship with God for a second. You cannot gratify yourself in one way or the other over and over and over again without your relationships with the real people in your life beginning to change. And you, and you begin to look to them to gratify your needs. It just happens. It, we, can't, we can't be this kind of person over here and not become that way over here. These habits shape us. They shape us. I mean, even if you're just hurting yourself, don't you care about your own life? What does it say about you, about me, about us, that we do things every day that we know are hurting ourselves? Now, I know there are many, many, many people who do care about this issue. They, they're ashamed of it. They desperately want to be free. That's part of the struggle with sexual desire and really any addiction, because you could could put in any form of addiction or, or struggle or compulsive behavior here. The, the addiction kind of, it seems to possess us sometimes, that disordered attachment. It seems to possess us. And the problem is that the times that we experience the most profound freedom in the throes of an addiction is right after you've given in to it. That's when your head is clear for a second, or it feels like it is. And you, you build up that resolve to never do it again, never make that mistake again. But that creates its own vicious loop, doesn't it? The only time I feel free is when I give in. And of course, you're not really free. You're still enslaved. But it feels free. And it feels hopeless. So the solution isn't just to accept lust as a natural desire, because we know better than that. It's not to deny the hurt that it causes others or ourselves. It's not to avoid it by keeping in the dark, because in the dark, it only grows. Acceptance, avoidance just doesn't work. We need to engage with it. Redeem it. In order to do that, we have to understand the problem and, and find a better solution. And Jesus' instructions really point us to that, the problem and solution. So there are uh, six points, three about the problem, three about the solution. We're just going to kind of rifle through these, especially the last, the last three. So the first problem is that it's in you. The problem is in us, in you, each of us, the lust. Right? Jesus says, tear out your eye, your eye. Cut off your right hand. Now, what does that mean? It means the problem is with you and your right eye and your hand. The problem is not that other people are just so attractive. It just creates the lust or the desire in us, right? It's not even that they dress provocatively. It's not that we're inundated with sexual images, though that can affect our experience. The fact is, think about Jesus, right? Jesus could see anything. Anything could pass by his eyes and the lust wouldn't be there. It would be perfect desire. I mean, think about, think about, just think about what happens with, with desire. 
right? When we see an attractive person, we could desire all sorts of things. There are all sorts of options. You might desire to just honor the beauty. You might desire to give thanks for it. If you see someone who is dressed in a way that you think is overly provocative or kind of has its own lustful intent to draw your gaze, you might desire to cover that person, to almost protect that person, to come alongside that person as a brother or sister or kind of a, a father or a mother, or you might desire to possess and take hold of that person. Why the one and not the other? The problem is in us. The problem is in us. And that means it's our responsibility to manage. We can't walk around and expect everybody else to manage the problem for us. That's, that's one problem in what some people call this kind of purity culture, where women, and in some cases men, are blamed for just kind of for being pretty and showing too much of their beauty, and they're made to feel as if others' lust is really their problem and their responsibility to manage, and so don't wear anything that may ever draw someone's gaze. Make sure to give your husband plenty of sex, right? And then everything will be okay. Then everything will be okay. And sex is a good, healthy thing in marriage. But if the heart is whole, then it doesn't matter how another person dresses. The heart won't be drawn to it because the heart is full. Now notice, or hear me, that you're not solely to blame if you have this problem of lust. The, pro the problem can be terribly complex. Sexual trauma, abuse, being exposed to things like pornography at a young age, these can have deep, lasting effects on the soul, damaging effects, and they result in attractions, urges that children never asked for and should never experience at their age and could never understand or fathom at their age. It's almost like the problem is just handed to them, but even in those cases, as sad and tragic as they may be, once the problem has been handed to you, it's in you, it's your responsibility to take care of. No one can change it once it's in you, but you, with the help of others, but it starts with you. The problem is in us. But second, the problem is that you have a corrupt eye or, or a bad hand, right? Your eye is seeing something that's not really there. Jesus says, tear it out. It's no good. You can't see well with it, right? What are we seeing? Instead of a human person or image, what we see, essentially, is a God, don't we? We project onto that person or that image our desire for what? For eternity, for infinite joy, for infinite pleasure, for infinite acceptance, for infinite security, for a sense of power or control. We see and it, we project onto others this deep desire for the infinite, this deep desire for eternity. And that way, lust is a form of psychosis, right? It's, we're losing sight of reality. And that's how we behave in the throes of this. We prostrate ourselves. We throw away our life for these things. Sleep, we throw it away, right? Our best hours for our kids or family, we throw it away. We create a whole system of rest and reward around venerating these images, right? It's a total distortion of reality. It's a psychosis. And, and the reality is that the object is not a God, is it? She or he is not a God. She is, or he is a, is a person with a story, with pains and hurts, who despite all appearances to the, you know, despite what appearances may be, that person wants to be known and loved for more than just their body. But we don't want to, of course, we don't want to think about that in the moment. Because that rips away the whole fantasy. It grounds us again in reality, and that reality is too painful for us to bear. 
So we lose sight of reality, but we also lose touch with reality. Jesus calls our attention to, to the hand, to the right hand, right, the right side in Scripture, a symbol of power. Exodus 15, Moses sings, Your right hand, O Lord, is glorious in power. Lust is not just a sight problem. It's a power problem. We get inflated. When we begin to play God, we want to know more, right? Lust can take the shape of unrestrained, even childish curiosity, a desire for a kind of forbidden knowledge where we reach and peel away where we shouldn't, where we should remain covered. We trespass boundaries as if the rules don't apply to us, as if we're exceptions to all the rules. We get a surge of adrenaline when we witness more extreme acts. We get a we get a surge of adrenaline and we take more and more risks and we feel like God. We reach for what's not been given to us, don't we? We desire to possess, to manipulate, to rule, or we desire to be possessed, to be ruled. And so we mass experiences. We draw, we dress to draw others' gazes, and it can happen in person, it can happen in your imagination. But whatever form it takes, we're indulging in this distorted reality, this, this fantasy where we use our power to gratify ourselves rather than to serve others. And that's why marriage doesn't solve the lust problem, right? Each of us, if you are married, you've almost certainly at one time or another looked to your spouse to fill that deep void, right? To meet the need for eternity. It's called infatuation. Nearly every one of us have experienced that before, and it doesn't stop with that. Many wives and husbands have been crushed by the expectations of their spouse to fill that deep desire. Many wives and husbands have been crushed when they can't, and the spouse turns elsewhere. So we have a corrupt eye, we have a bad hand, we're looking, reaching, clawing, pining to fill that deep longing for eternity that can't be filled by anything created. But third, the problem is dangerous. Jesus says it's better to lose your eye or hand than for your body to be thrown into hell. He just says it. Now, read the New Testament. It's clear. 1 Corinthians 6, so many other places, it says the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. They don't fit into the kingdom of God. Lust is a serious offense, according to Jesus. It's an offense against others. It's not all in our head, right? Countless men and women have been crushed by other people's lust. They've been betrayed, objectified, abused, all due to lust. Countless children have suffered the devastating effects of neglect and broken marriages, all due to lust. And God looks at all of this pain and suffering, and his heart burns with anger. And shouldn't it? Isn't that anger righteous? Lust is an offense against others. It's also an offense against God because God has made us to know and love him. He's given us this beautiful gift, the sexual desire, and yet we use all the power he's given us to create a fantasy that robs him of his place, rejects his beautiful way, and creates our own way. And, it, and it, we imagine destruction for ourselves and others. And of course it plays out in our life. It's a, an offense against others. It's an offense against God, and so what does justice look like? How do we repay the life we've taken from others, even if it's just in our imagination? If we insist on feeling the burn and consuming others to sustain that burn, then there is only one place where God's kingdom and his people will be safe from us. 
His kingdom is so precious. It's so holy. There's only one place to be safe if you insist on that burn. It's hell. But Jesus isn't preaching here just to condemn people. He's preaching to save people. He's preaching and he's living in the Gospels to save us from the fire. The solution, number four, is Jesus, right? He writes the words on the Sermon on the Mount. He speaks the words, but they're not the final word, right? He gives us this impossible standard. Gouge out your eye. Do it, cut off your arm. Do whatever it takes, he says. Whatever it takes. It's an impossible, outrageous standard. And he doesn't stop there, though. He doesn't stop there. He doesn't just speak this radical demand. He demonstrates the beauty of life lived in conformity to it in the rest of his life. And he fulfills it for us. And he takes the punishment due us for breaking this command. Just look at Jesus' life in the Gospels. Look at how he interacts with women. In John 4, he's alone with the Samaritan woman, right? The woman at the well. Remember, he knows everything about her. He knows her sexual proclivity. He doesn't avoid her. Of course he doesn't flirt with her. No, he, he connects in order to restore her. Matthew 26, the woman expresses her love and devotion to him by anointing his head with perfume. Jesus isn't drawn to bed her. He doesn't feel lust. He feels gratitude. He feels honor, and he honors her back, and he defends her in the, public of, in the, in the, in the presence of the men who attack her. Read the Gospels and you'll see something interesting that women seem to flock to him. And why is that? Because women feel safe with him. It's a beautiful picture. In a world where women are unjustly subjugated, Jesus uses his power, his right eye and his right hand to, to see them and know them, to restore their honor, to reach down with his right hand of power and raise them up. Right? It's a picture of wholeheartedness of purity, holiness. Jesus shows us a picture of a heart that burns with desire for you, too. In Luke twenty-two fifteen, 15, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. He says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover meal before with you before I suffer. Earnestly desired, he says, to eat this meal. And it's interesting because in the Greek, it's the same word for lust, epitomia, epitomia. In a sense, I've lusted to eat this meal. I burn with desire to eat this meal to give you a sign of my abiding love before I suffer for you. And it's not just for his disciples, it's for us, right? Our burning lust leads us to consume others, their life for ours, right? Your life for mine. But Jesus' burning desire, his, in a sense, holy lust compels him to be consumed for us. His life for ours. Right? On the cross, what does Jesus do? Oh my goodness, what does he do? He embodies our shame, including sexual shame. He's stripped naked on the cross. He's literally exposed, and the authorities look up at him. The religious authorities, they look up at him, and they mock him, this pathetic picture, this naked man. If you want to find sexual freedom, look to the cross and see reality. See Jesus burning with holy desire for you, burning with the punishment, do you? Look to the resurrection and see Jesus raised up for you. Look to the ascension and outpouring of the Spirit and see Jesus' life, His Spirit, His heart poured into you. 
You have the holiness of Christ. You have the righteousness, the wholeness, the purity of Christ. You are clean. You cannot be soiled. Yes, you may struggle with lust, but it no longer defines you. God is not enraged at you. He loves you like a son or daughter. He is proud of you. He is not ashamed to be with you. Jesus offers to fulfill that infinite desire that each of us have, that each of us in our own way is seeking to satisfy in some other way than God. Each of us has a lust, right? Lust is just that desire for the eternal, that infinite desire for joy or peace or pleasure or acceptance. Whatever it is, each of us are looking to created things for it. That's a form of lust. Jesus says, I will fill that for you. I will fill it for you, but I will also teach you to know what true intimacy is, to know what true godly power looks like. And so what does it look like then to work alongside Jesus, who's working in us, to grow in maturity and wholeness? In general, it takes, let me just start kind of broadly, in general, it takes a willingness, a heart, that's, that's willing to do whatever it takes, that's so captivated by who Jesus is and what he's done for you, that's so, and the, the picture of who you are in Jesus is so embedded in you, that you're willing to do whatever it takes. But in Jesus' day, Take another look at this instruction that Jesus gives us. In his day, the temple is divided into sections arranged in proximity to the most holy place, right? There's the outer court of the Gentiles. And then in a little nearer to the most holy place is the court of women. And then you have the court of men, right? In between the court of women and the court of men, you have the beautiful gate. Now in Acts 3, it shows us that people would take disabled persons, the lame, the blind, and lay them at the beautiful gate so that they could ask for alms, as the text says, as the, as the people entered the temple. You really hadn't entered the temple until you stepped through the beautiful gate into the court of men. But the blind and the lame were not permitted to enter that. They're confined to the court of women, in a sense, outside the temple. And so notice what Jesus is saying here. He's telling the men who struggle with lust. He's telling all of us who struggle. He says, he tells them, become, in a sense, blame and blame. Blind and lame. Gouge out the eye. Tear off your arm. What does that mean? You can't go any further than where. You can't even go through the beautiful gate. Relegate yourself to outside the gate, outside the temple, to the place in the, in the court of women, he's saying to the men. Take your place with them. And what does that mean for these men? What it means is that they have to give up this distorted view of reality, that they have some kind of special claim on God, some special access or status. They have some kind of special privilege, right? And that's where this begins, is to step away. Step away, ad admit you've got a delusion. There's a distorted reality at work in you. Admit your delusion of grandeur. Admit your delusion of being in control. Admit your delusion of being the single exception to the rule. That's the beginning of true change. I mean, how do people change? How do people change? It's, it's, it's something of a mystery, but we know at least this, that that it's when people finally see reality as it really is, when their eyes are open, right? The, 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 the psychosis lifts, the delusions stop, and they, they see also that there is real hope. Take your place outside the gate with the blind and the lame. Be willing to do whatever it takes. And that means, that means at least two things that I'm going to go through quickly. First, you're going to stop avoiding pain. 
You're going to embrace the pain, gouging your eye, tearing off your arm. That hurts. It's painful. Progress, sanctification, growing in wholeness always involves pain. Lean into the pain. The pain is a sign of the truth and the light and the Spirit of God pressing in further and further, taking over more and more. Pain is the corruption going away. Right? So lean into the pain, the painful truths about yourself, the painful truths about your past, sexual struggle, any addiction. It doesn't just come from nowhere. It comes from somewhere. It always comes from somewhere. There's always a story behind it. You don't have to know every detail about that story, but the more you know that story, the more you know where the pain comes from. Why do you have, if you struggle in this way, why do you have the fantasies that you do? How is that connected to your pain? Even your fantasies can become a kind of roadmap to growing in holiness, to recovery. Get to know this part of you that struggles so. And that will be painful. It'll also mean making concrete changes. I mean, imagine living with no eye. You only got two, right? Or living with only one arm. Your life is going to change significantly in some ways. Some of the changes will be pretty easy to get along with. Others are going to take a lot of time, right? If you're right-handed and you cut off your right hand, now you've got to learn to do things with your left hand. That's going to be hard. And you're going to need help from others. In the same way, make the concrete changes that need to be made in your life. Get outside help. And I could go into this, but this kind of problem, like any sort of compulsive behavior, is not something you can handle on your own. And so I hesitate to give you all these little pieces of advice because then you'll hear it and think, well, maybe I'll give it one more shot. Don't do it. Get your outside help. Find somebody to walk through this with. Right? But finally, remember your hope. Accept that you, no, remember your hope. Accept that you belong outside the gate, but remember, friends, in the story of Scripture, beautiful things happen outside the gate. Christ's death happens outside the gate. Christ is risen. Christ brings the most holy place to the lame and the blind. He restores their bodies and he become, they become his temple. It's okay to be outside the gate with the rest of us that's where we belong, and that's where Jesus is. Jesus doesn't just want to cut away your life, and it can feel so much like that. I don't know if I can live without this. He's not trying to cut away your life. He's trying to bring you new life. And again, C.S. Lewis, in, this, um, in his short novel story, The Great Divorce, he gets at this beautifully. So let me close by just reading you a little piece of, of this story the Great Divorce is about um, ghosts in hell who are given a chance to visit heaven or the new creation. And the story is told in the first person as if the author is watching all this unfold. In fact, the, the storyteller himself is from hell and he visits heaven. But here's a story about a ghost or a man's struggle to be free of his lust. This is the author speaking. He says, I saw coming towards us a ghost who carried something on his shoulder. Like all the ghosts, he was unsubstantial. But they differed from one another as smokes differ. Some had been whitish. This one was dark and oily. What sat on his shoulder was a little red lizard. It was twitching its tail like a whip and whispering things in his ear. 
As we caught sight of him, he turned his head to the reptile with a snarl of impatience. Shut up, I tell you, he said. It wagged its tail, continued to whisper to him. He ceased snarling and presently began to smile. Then he turned and started to limp westward away from the mountains. An angel comes up, right? The, the little red, red lizard, the symbol of the lust. An angel comes up to him. Off so soon? Yes, I'm off, said the ghost. Thanks for all your hospitality, but it's no good, you see. I told this little chap, here he indicated the lizard, that he'd have to be quiet if he came, which he insisted on going. Of course, his stuff won't do here, I realize that, but he won't stop. I'll, I'll have to go home. Would you like me to make him quiet, said the angel. Of course I would, said the ghost. Then I will kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. Ah, look out. Your warmth is burning me. Keep away, said the ghost, retreating back. Do you want him killed? Don't you want him killed? Well, you didn't say anything about killing him at first. I hardly meant to bother you with anything so drastic as that. Now what follows in the story is a back and forth between this angel and ghost until the angel's burning hands are nearly around the lizard, ready to kill it. The ghost believes he won't survive the lizard's death. The angel promises, he says, I will kill the lizard, but I won't kill you. You won't die. And so the angel asks the ghost, do I have your permission? I know it will kill me. It won't kill you, but supposing it did. You're right. It would be better to be dead than to live with this creature. Then may I? Blast you. Go on. Can't you get it over? Do what you like, fellow the ghost, but ended whimpering, God help me. God help me. Next moment, the ghost gives a scream of agony such as never heard on earth. The burning one closed his crimson grip around the reptile, twisted it while it bit and writhed, and then flung it broken back on the turf. Oh, I'm done for, said the ghost, reeling backwards. But here's what happens, right? The ghost falls down, but he's transformed as the author watches into a beautiful man. The lizard lies crumpled in the grass, but it's transformed into a glorious stallion, right? And it stamps its hoofs and shakes the trees of the new creation. And the story continues. The man turns and looks at the burning one, the angel, and embraces his feet. When he rose, the author says, I thought his face shone with tears, but it may have been only the liquid love and brightness. One cannot distinguish them in that country, which flowed from him. I had not long to think about it. In joyous haste, the young man leaped upon the horse's back. Turning in his seat, he waved a farewell, then nudged the stallion with his heels. They were off before I well knew what was happening. There was rioting, if you like. I came out as quickly as I could from the bushes to follow them with my eyes, but already they were only like a shooting star off in the green plain, and soon among the foothills of the mountains, and then like a star, I watched them winding up and up and up into the heavenly city. Right, as we come to the table, that's what Jesus offers to do for you. He doesn't invite you merely to, he doesn't command you merely to gouge out your eyes or tear off your arms. Right? Sexual passion. That was his idea. He came up with that. And it's beautiful to him. He does not want you to suppress that or destroy it. He wants to redeem it. He wants to transform it into something beautiful. He wants to form a new kind of power in you, right? a new right side, a new right eye, a new right hand, right? a right eye that will look to others in honor, 
to know and love them, a right eye that will spring with gratitude in the presence of beauty, not a right hand that doesn't reach to possess, a right hand that reaches to protect, to restore, to lift up, to work justice, to cover the uncovered, to rescue those who have been exploited. Right? But that will only happen if you look to Jesus to fill the longing in your soul. If you reach for Jesus, if you see the right hand of God in Jesus coming down on you, not in wrath, not in rejection, but in love to lift you up. So as we come to the table now, with your eyes, look to Jesus to fulfill that desire for eternity that each of you have. Look to him to fulfill that in as much as the bread and wine will fill your stomachs. And reach for him. And in your reaching, offer him all of your disordered loves, all your disordered attachments. In your reaching for the bread, offer him all of those and let him exchange it for his life. That's what he promises to give you here. There is hope for change. There is hope for a new body and soul. And in Jesus, God is making that true. Jesus promises to form that kind of pure, beautiful, whole power in you as you come to the table, as you walk with him day to day, as you seek help from your brothers and sisters. Right. So let's pray. Father, may, may you prepare us now to come to your table. Those who are experiencing conviction, comfort them with your grace. Those who are experiencing shame, may they also see the honor of Jesus given to them. Those who are experiencing hurt, those who have been, who have suffered greatly, due to betrayal, abandonment, neglect. Help them to see you standing with them, you insisting on justice for them, lamenting with them, but also forgiving the ways they too, all of us have betrayed and abandoned you. Help that to work in us a desire for justice tempered with a gratitude for the great mercy that we've shown or that we've been shown by you. As we come to the table now, do, do let us look to you to fill our hearts and souls and reach to give you all of our disordered loves in order to receive from you your perfect, your perfect love and the bread and the wine. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.